0: Plum Creek, and we are a place where you matter. Our mission here is centered around changed lives, changing lives. We believe this happens through three relationships. Intimacy with God, intentionality with family, and influence with others. God has something He wants to say specifically to you wherever you are. Our hope is that you will leave encouraged and closer to Him than ever before. We'd love to connect with you online at PlumCreekOnline.com or on social media, where you can see how Plum Creek is impacting our community and what opportunities we have for you and your family to get connected. If you'd like to support the ministry we're doing here in Castle Rock, the two easiest ways are through the Give tab on our website or via your mobile device by texting your dollar amount to the number on the screen. Thanks again for joining us. We hope you'll enjoy this message. Well, good morning, and it is uh, an honor and a privilege to be able to share with our own congregation. My wife Connie and I love being a part of Plum Creek, and we love Pastor Doug and the rest of the team that lead us here, and I get the privilege to work with church teams around the country, and I just want you to know how blessed we are to have the team that leads us here. And so when you have the chance to see them around town, around the community, be sure to say a word of encouragement to them. When the Lord brings them to mind, um, just say a prayer and whisper a prayer on their behalf because what they do for us uh, is not easy and it's challenging to lead a church in this generation and I'm grateful for the team that we have in front of us. Well, I want you to go back just about five or six minutes in your mind to when we were singing that song that you saw the words up on the screen. You are good. And you know, when life is easy and everything's going well and there's money in the bank and we're getting along at home, it's pretty easy for us on a day like today to sing to God, You are good. But boy, when life begins to come off the rails and it's coming apart at the seams and we're filled with a lot of confusion and questions, it's not so easy to honestly say, You are good. This morning, I want to introduce you to someone you've likely never heard of. Her name is Veronica Bowers. Her friends call her Ronnie, which was her nickname. She married a guy named Jim, and together they felt called to mission work and landed an opportunity to work in a remote village in the country of Peru. One of Ronnie's biggest disappointments in life was that she was not able to have children on her own. But by the Lord's grace, even though they were missionaries in Peru, they were able to adopt a little boy named Corey, and they welcomed him into the family. And then it wasn't long until the, the Lord doubled their blessing, and they adopted a brand new or fairly new baby girl, and they, nick, or they named her Charity, and they welcomed her into the family. Well, they needed to obtain a permanent visa for charity, and so they got in their little single engine Cessna that they used for their mission work and they flew to a town near the border in Brazil and they filled out all the paperwork, got all the documentation. The the mission was a success. They were now headed home. They They loaded back into that plane, Ronnie, Jim, and Charity and they were flying back home and they were about 40 minutes out from landing when something happened that would forever change the destiny of their family. Their little single-engine Cessna was intercepted by the Peruvian Air Force. And those Air Force fighter jets assumed that the plane had drugs and without any kind of communication, opened fire on that single-engine Cessna. More than 50 bullets penetrated the body of the plane, causing it to spiral downward and ultimately crash in the waters of the Amazon. Jim survived the crash and he frantically was looking for Ronnie and Charity And he found both of them, and as he pulled them out of the murky waters of the Amazon, it soon was evident that neither one of them had survived. They would later discover that a single bullet had gone through the back of the plane, through Ronnie's seat, had pierced her heart, and went straight into Charity's skull, and they were both killed instantly. Here was a seven-month-old baby and a 35-year-old mom who'd given her life to serve God in missions in an uncomfortable place, and if you allow yourself to linger over stories like that very long, it leads you to some really hard and really uncomfortable questions. The reflex question for all of us, I think, is why? I mean, it seems so senseless. Where, God, is the justice and fairness in what happened to Ronnie? And if you are a little bit cynical, you might even ask God some really tough questions. Like, God, here's a young woman who gave her life to serve you in a difficult part of the world and a seven-month-old baby, and this is their reward? And where were you on that day when those... Bullets penetrated that little plane and if you could have prevented it, why didn't you? Those are fair questions. And if you're Jim, how do you begin to make sense of what's just happened in your world? Because tomorrow morning and the next morning and the morning after that and every morning for the rest of your life, you're going to turn over in bed and the person that you committed your life to who is your lover and friend and partner in ministry is not going to be there and... That little girl you'd worked so hard to adopt, you're never gonna get to hold in your arms again, and how do you begin to explain to a seven-year-old little boy that his mom is never coming home? Those stories surface for us a lot of raw emotions and cause us to ponder some of life's most profound questions, and this is a difficult message because it takes us to an uncomfortable place where faith is not neat and tidy And all buttoned up. And these questions that we're gonna talk about have been around since the beginning of history, but they are as current as today's news. So if you came to Plum Creek this morning looking for the warm, fuzzy, pick me up, feel good sermon, you came the wrong weekend. Come back next weekend, maybe it'll work out better for you. But what we are gonna do, is dive deep into some real life and real world stuff because at some point in your faith journey, something's gonna happen, something unexpected is gonna explode in your world and your faith is gonna be rocked and your world's gonna be turned upside down and you're gonna ponder some of the questions that we're gonna talk about today and who knows, maybe you're here and even though on the outside, it looks like everything is well and good on the inside Life is coming apart for you. Maybe you got some news this week that has rocked your world, and maybe you have some questions for God, just like the psalmist did in Psalm 44. When the psalmist said, Wake up, Lord, why do you sleep? Get up, don't reject us forever. Why do you look the other way? Why do you ignore our suffering and oppression? Maybe you've got questions. Maybe just like the psalmist, you kinda feel like God has checked out on your situation. And even for those of us who've been Christ followers for a long time, the truth is, we have questions we don't have answers to. There are still things in life that we don't know what God is doing and we understand that just because you're a Christian doesn't mean that you're insulated from the deepest and darkest valleys of life and that can leave you with some really honest questions, and I think for people like myself and others who stand on platforms like this and preach God's words, it's important for us to be honest about the reality of that. It makes me think of a guy that, um, his name is Steve Sane, and Steve was the son of one of the most famous missionaries who were martyred um, in 1956, killed by the Aka Indians, and Steve lost his dad. And so growing up, he had all these same questions about why, why me, why did this happen to my dad? Here he was serving God and now he's been killed. And many years later, Steve would write these words about his journey. In life, many of us Christians have tried to preach and have tried to believe that the life of a believer is all joy and no pain, and he says, that just isn't so. And we've tried to believe that though for those people who don't know the Lord as we do, their life is all pain and no joy, and that isn't so. He says, but you know what the difference is, and it's taken me a long time to learn it. For them, the pain is fundamental and the joy is superficial because it it won't last. But for us, the pain is superficial and the joy is fundamental. And he's saying life's not just simple and neat and you just put it in this clean little box. And I think it's important that as Christians, we don't just offer simplistic answers to some of life's most complex Questions. And so I want us to take a look at life down in the trenches, down where it's messy and confusing and full of doubt. I don't want us to airbrush our faith and only hold up a picture of following God that is clean and neat and sanitary because that's not life. It's not always clean, it's not always rational, and it's certainly not always pleasant. And a lot of people's life does not end with the, with the words, they lived happily ever after. I don't know if you've ever had this experience of maybe sitting in a room like this on a Sunday morning, and someone tells their story, and they describe a very painful, hurtful journey, but when they get to the end, they tell you about how they got the answered prayer, and the healing finally came, and God did this amazing miracle in their life. And most times when you hear those stories, you're moved, and you're inspired, and you're blessed. But every now and then, I think there are people like us that sit in rooms like that hear stories like that and when we get done what we really think is great for you but what about me I've been praying and God hasn't answered I haven't gotten the miracle the healing hasn't ever come is is it because I'm doing something wrong is it because I don't have enough faith do I need to pray different kinds of words what do I need to do and I think it's a question that we all grapple with, and sometimes it's on the really big issues like cancer and losing a child, and but sometimes it's more simpler things like just financial stress or being in a relationship that we can't figure out how to make work or maybe we've got a child that's in rebellion and we're praying for them to come back and Maybe there's some addictive behavior we just cannot seem to get victory over. It's it's this question that underlies all of that. What do you do when life doesn't work out like you'd hoped and prayed? How do you handle that? How do you navigate life when that's the truth? And there's really two things I wanna try to go after in the message this morning. Number one is I wanna try to help us get a really accurate picture of God and who he is and how he responds to people who go through some of life's most painful suffering. And secondly, offer hopefully some practical help of what do you do when suffering invades your world? How do you navigate that successfully as hard as it is? And so I'm convinced that if Jesus were in the flesh, standing in front of us and talking about this topic, there's at least two things he would say to us this morning and they're the two things I wanna camp on. Here's number one, that he would say to us in our pain, would you just let me be God? And so I think it starts with having an accurate understanding of who he is and of his character. Do you guys remember a few years ago when those things called glamour shots were popular? I bet a few of you had those, and I remember going into this house. I was having dinner with a pastor and his wife, and she was finishing up some preparations in the kitchen, and uh, he was showing me kind of around their house, and we were looking at paintings and photos on the wall, and he showed me uh, a picture, a photo on his mantle of his family, and he was talking about each of his kids, and But sitting next to that picture was another picture of a woman. And I almost asked, who is that? And then I looked close and it dawned on me, that was this guy's wife. And I was like shocked because I'm telling you, that picture, it was not just a glamour shot or a makeover, it was a magic trick. What they they did to make her look like that. And I'm convinced that some of us carry around a glamour shot of God. Removing the, and airbrushing the things that really aren't palatable for us. The things that we don't like and making God to be who we want him to be. And so many of our ideas about God are shaped by culture and media and and television preachers and books that we read and podcasts and how we were raised and maybe our church experience growing up. But I think especially when it comes to a topic like this, it's really important for us to let God speak for himself. And so I want to take you to several verses that are going to allow God to tell us in his own words sort of how he thinks about this situation. So first he would say, I want you to let me be God because I am in control and I decide what I allow into your life. Again, I'm not sure what your view of God is, but it is absolutely clear in scripture that the Bible portrays God as someone who is in total control over the affairs of the world. And not just sort of guiding the large purpose of history, but even over the affairs of your life. And so you and I can take confidence in knowing that no matter what we're going through, it has not caught God off guard. He's not sitting up in heaven, wringing his hands, wondering how things are gonna turn out in your life. Proverbs nineteen twenty one says, you can make a lot of plans, but at the end of the, day, end of the day, it's the Lord's purpose that will prevail. Have you ever noticed that God doesn't always consult you about his plans, and that often he interrupts your plans. Now, there's nothing wrong with planning. The Bible just says be sure to hold all of your plans loosely and with an open hand because when your plans intersect God's purposes, his purposes are going to win and they're going to trump your plans every time because he is in control. It's never said more clearly than in the book of Daniel, the fourth chapter. Speaking about God, it says, all the people of the earth are nothing compared to him. He has the power to do as he pleases among the angels of heaven and with those who live on the earth. That's you and me. No one can stop him or challenge him saying, what do you mean by doing these things? God is absolutely sovereign, large and in charge, and nothing that comes into your life comes that he doesn't allow. But some people because of their pain, have decided to give God a makeover. They can, in their mind, reconcile the pain in the world and the pain they've experienced and a God who is supposedly all-powerful. And probably the best example of that was a guy by the name of Rabbi Harold Kushner. He went through a terrible journey with his son, watching his son die of a disease called progeria. And Kushner could not reconcile his theology of a God who is sovereign and powerful and would let something like that happen. And so he wrote his journey in a book called When Bad Things Happen to Good People. And one of his conclusions in his book is this, that even God has a hard time keeping chaos in check. And while God may be a God of justice, he is not a God of power. And millions of readers found comfort in Kushner's portrayal of a kind of God who's kind and compassionate but rather weak and unable to manage the affairs of the world. And Ellie Weissel, who was a famous survivor of the Holocaust, responds to Kushner's book with these words. If that's who God is, why doesn't he resign and let someone more competent take his place? I don't know about you, but I don't find any comfort in a kind of God who is kind and compassionate but impotent to do anything. The very essence of what it means to be God is that you are sovereign and in control. And God would say, I've got it. I'm in charge. Secondly, he would say, I want you to let me be God because your suffering is not random, it's purposeful. Like what's come into your life, it's not just circumstantial or just happenstance. It's it's providential. In fact, Paul would write about this when he says, we are pressed on every side by troubles, but we're not crushed. We're perplexed, but not driven by despair. We're hunted down, but never abandoned by God. We get knocked down, but we're not destroyed. Paul said, I've had all kinds of pain and suffering and problems and persecution, thrown in prison, mistreated, abandoned, Paul said, I've been through a lot, but then in verse 10 he says, through suffering, our bodies continue to share in the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may be seen in our bodies. Paul says, there is purpose in my suffering. God has a plan in my suffering, and part of that plan is that the life and light of Jesus would be able to shine through me, and sometimes that happens best in suffering, and here's the kind of downside of this. You and I don't get a vote. We don't get a voice in it. We don't get to barter or negotiate with God. Suffering happens. When it happens, we don't get a say in. How long we have to endure it, we may not get a say in. But what we can take comfort in is knowing that there is purpose in what we're going through. It is not random. And so most of the suffering that happens in in people's lives is really is not about punishment. It's more about God's power in their life. It's not because God is rebuking them as much as it is God is refining them and doing something that will make them better and accomplish his purposes in the process. And so God says, let me be God. I'm in control. I promise what comes into your life, it's not random. And then here's the hardest part of this, that God would say, let me be God even when I don't explain why you're going through what you're going through. I'm sure all of us in this room are familiar with the guy in the Old Testament. His name is Job. And Job is a part of this honestly rather bizarre story. The book of Job opens with Satan coming before God and God sort of pointing to the earth and singling out Job and putting the spotlight on Job and saying, I want you to notice my servant Job. He's the most righteous man on all the earth. And Satan goes, well, of course he is. Why wouldn't he be? He's got it made, he's healthy, his family's intact, he's got his marriage, Um, he's living the dream, and God says, okay, I'll tell you what, you can do anything to Job except take his life. Now, Job's completely unaware of this conversation that takes place in heaven. Job is rocking along in his life, and all of a sudden, one day, someone walks in and says, Job, I don't know how to tell you this, but um, there's been an attack, and all of your livestock have been killed. Now for Job, that was his financial nest egg. That's what made him wealthy and in one day, all of his wealth is completely obliterated. And before that guy gets the words out, another messenger walks in and says, Job, um, there's been a raid and some of our enemies have come and they have killed every one of your employees. All of your servants are dead. And before that guy finishes what he's saying, another person walks in and says, Job, I'm not sure where to begin or how to tell you this, but all of your kids, all 10 of them were together in a house and they were having a party and there was this freak windstorm and the house collapsed on them and all 10 of them have been killed. And as if that devastation wasn't enough, the Bible says that from the bottom of his feet to the top of his head, he was covered with painful sores. And his wife comes over in the midst of all this and she whispers in his ear and says, why don't you just curse God and die? I mean, just end it. This isn't worth it. And Job just makes one simple response. He says, should we accept good from God and not trouble? And for the next 35 chapters in the book of Job, you and I sort of get a front row seat as Job wrestles with the questions of why and why me and what about this suffering and sometimes he he demands an answer from God. And sometimes he regrets the day that he was born. Some days he declares his trust in God. It's an emotional roller coaster and then he's got these friends, supposed friends, who point their finger at Job and say, "Job, Bad things don't happen to good people. The reason you're going through this, Job, is there's some kind of sin or evil in your life, and this is God's punishment on you. And here's what's most amazing about those 35 chapters. God never says a word. In fact, God doesn't speak until chapter 38. Now, I want you to imagine today that you are there, and your God is... And now you're gonna speak to Job for the first time in these 35 chapters. And by the way, he's unaware of the conversation that happened between Satan and God. What would you say to him? I know what I'd say to him. Job, man, I'm so sorry. I mean, you have been put through the ringer. And I know you've got a lot of questions. There's been a lot of confusion. You've had a lot of pain and suffering. But Job, you've come through on the other end with your face still intact. I am so proud of you. It's not at all what God says. In fact, God doesn't explain himself at all. He just explodes. And for four chapters, all God talks about is how big he is, how holy he is, how sovereign he is, how majestic he is. And at the end of four chapters of God talking that way, here was Job's response. Surely I spoke of things I didn't understand and two things too wonderful for me to know. In other words, he's saying, God, I get it. I was out of line. And what God was fundamentally communicating to Job is this, Job, I'm God, you're not, I don't owe you an explanation. And sometimes the hard thing for us to accept is that we may go to our grave with some questions that will never be answered for us on this side of life. I remember when I was a young pastor, I always felt this pressure that when someone was going through a crisis or a loss of a family member, I always felt this pressure to be able to say something or pray just the right prayer or give them a Bible verse that would make it all better. And what I quickly discovered is that the best thing you offer people when you're walking with them through a crisis is your presence and your love. Because the truth is, there's rarely just the right word that's gonna make it better. A Bible verse doesn't erase all of the pain. And sometimes there's just no explanation. 1 Corinthians 13, Paul says, we see things imperfectly as in a poor mirror, but someday we will see with perfect clarity. All that I know now is partial and incomplete, but someday I will know everything completely just as God knows me now. So let me be God. There's a second thing I think he would say to us and that is, could you trust me? Now that's not easy because sometimes on one side there's my personal pain that is filled with all kinds of confusion and questions and then over on this side is this biblical truth that God's in control, that my suffering is not random, but there's this big gap between those and I don't have any Bridge to span the gap and so God says what I want you to do is when you don't understand and when you don't have answers and when you're filled with confusion, you fill the gap with trust. There's this moment in the book of Job that I think is the pinnacle moment of the book. It's not when God finally breaks his silence. It happens much earlier in chapter 13. When Job is right in the middle of all of his confusion, all of his doubt, questions with no answers, And he he has this one moment when faith surges inside of him and trust bubbles to the surface and he puts this stake in the ground with this statement. Even though he slay me, yet will I trust him. Even if this ultimately concludes in my death and I don't get answers, I'm gonna choose to trust God. And God would say, I want you to trust me first because I am a good father. At the heart of this message this morning is this fundamental question. Is God good? Is he an attentive, caring, tender, compassionate father? Or is he some kind of sadistic, disinterested, distant, removed deity? Now, I can't put any empirical evidence up here on the platform to prove God's goodness, but what I can tell you is, after walking with the Lord for more than 40 years, the longer I know him, the more I trust him, because my experience with him is that he has been good. Doesn't mean I always have answers, doesn't mean I don't have my own confusion, but I trust his goodness. Many years ago, when my, my, my kids were small, we lived in this house where there was a big window um, off to the side of our kitchen, and that window had a kind of a big windowsill. I remember Jonathan was somewhere, Jonathan, my son, who's on staff here at Plum Creek, was somewhere between two and three years old, and I would put him up on the windowsill, and then I would step back and hold out my arms and just tell him to jump. And without any hesitation, he would leap off that windowsill under my arms, and, and we would laugh, and then I would do it again and put him up on the windowsill and this time I'd take an extra step back and tell him to jump and with no hesitation he would leap off of that windowsill. Why? Because we had done that hundreds of times and his dad had never dropped him. We'd done that hundreds of times and he had learned to trust his dad. Now that Jonathan's 35 and six foot two, that game's not as fun as it used to be. But it was a great lesson to me in trust. Psalm 34 is such a favorite of mine. The Lord is close to the brokenhearted. Those words are the words of a caring, loving, interested, attentive father, not some disinterested deity. You know, maybe for some of us, the most important thing in your suffering is not for you to get answers. It's not for God to explain his purpose, but it's rather for you to lean on his presence and trust that he really is good. I think you would also say, you know what, I want you to trust me because heaven is real. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul says, our present troubles are small and they're not gonna last very long, They produce for us a glory that vastly outweighs them and will last forever. So we don't look at the troubles or the suffering that we see now, rather we fix our gaze on things that cannot be seen, for the things we see now will soon be gone, but the things we cannot see will last forever. You wanna know one of the things that separates our generation of Christians from previous generations of Christians? In previous generations, when they would gather on a Sunday morning like this, and they would sing their worship songs, you know what the main theme was? heaven, because for them, life was hard. They gave up a lot to follow Christ. They were persecuted. Some of them even lost their lives for the sake of the gospel, and so when they got together to sing, what they sang about was heaven, because this world had a lot of suffering and problem in it, but I think for a lot of us, we've gotten so comfortable here and sort of put down roots here. Life's pretty good for us here, and honestly, the whole thought of heaven rarely even crosses our mind until our world gets rocked and we realize how fragile life is on this planet and we're reminded that this world is not our home and when life gets unbearable, it is one of the ways for God's, God to encourage us that this world is not our home. Philip Yancey says, the Bible never belittles human disappointment, but it does add one key word, temporary. What we feel now, we will not always feel. Our disappointment is itself a sign, an aching, a kind of hunger for something better. And faith is, in the end, a kind of homesickness for a home we've never visited, but we've been promised. So God said, this life is not all there is. sometimes, Sometimes suffering is our reminder that that's true. And then finally, he would say, trust me, because I want to use your pain and difficulty to demonstrate my power. Sometimes the beauty and brilliance of God's glory shines most brightly against the backdrop of suffering and pain. The cross is the great example of that. Through all the suffering and agony that Jesus went through on the cross, what came out of it was the potential for you and I to be saved and have an eternity with our Heavenly Father. And I don't understand it, but somehow, in God's providence and in His purpose, He is determined that sometimes He will do His most significant work through pain and suffering and trial. And there are some things that God chooses to do through you and in you only through suffering. Remember, there's that story in in uh, the New Testament where Paul gets this thorn in the flesh. We're not quite sure exactly what it is. All we know is. Paul prayed for it to be removed and it was never removed as far as we know. The healing never came. And finally, Paul recounts in 2 Corinthians 12, 9 that God would say to Paul, my grace is all you need. You don't need answers. You just need my grace. My power works best in weakness. So Paul would say, therefore I'm glad to boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ can work through me. I just wonder this morning, if maybe what the world needs, as much as they need the great story where the miracle happens at the end, or the healing finally comes, I wonder if it's not just as winsome and attractive for a few Christians to just walk through their pain a little bit differently. Still with confusion, still with doubt, lots of questions, but find the ability to still find joy have peace to not be angry and to put a stake in the ground that says I'm going to choose to trust to close this morning I want to take you back to Ronnie Bowers she of course had no idea that was going to happen that day over the Amazon but just a few days earlier she wrote some prophetic words in her journal and here's what she wrote Life doesn't always give you a storybook ending. You don't always end up with the answer to your prayers that you desire. God often chooses to do something different with your life than you envisioned. But it's okay. He's still God, and he still loves you. And as long as your confidence in God remains strong in the midst of all the questions and myriad of emotions, you'll be okay He's the only one who remains constant, and life is good if you stay in his arms. You may not understand where he leads, but you'll be safe and secure with him anywhere, even in death. And for some of us, life isn't turning out like we envisioned, but it can still be okay because your suffering is not random. It's purposeful. God is in control. And he really is a good father. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for being that good father. And Lord, I have no idea where people are in their journey today, what circumstances they might be facing, but my prayer is that you would meet them at their point of need, that you would reassure them that you are in control, that their suffering is not random, it is purposeful. We may not get answers now, Lord, but we can trust you, and we trust you because you're a good father and that you actually desire to take our suffering and to demonstrate your power through it. So Lord, even though it's hard, today we just put that stake in the ground and say we trust you. Now, our experience with you is that you are good and you are compassionate and for those who are beaten down and confused and brokenhearted I pray that they would be able to experience Psalm 34 that you would be close to the brokenhearted and you would rescue those in this service who are crushed in spirit thank you for being that kind of father in Jesus name amen God bless you.